scoundrels, heretics, believers, listen. Do you crave redemption? Do you feel that burden of poverty crushing you? You need relief, but how? How can you ask for help unless you first help yourself? Give unto the void. I was once a wretched crewman, breaking my back just to earn a credit. Then I found that glorious energy. Oh, and when I gave my first offering, how its richness rained down upon me. Do you want what I have received? Do you want it for yourself? Then give unto the void. Let your credits be the seed of your prosperity. Give unto the void, and you will be rewarded a hundredfold. The void be the word, and the word be to embrace the void. I hate purity. I hate goodness. I don't want virtue to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine Falling so slow Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional, I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 173 of Embrace the Void, where we are starting out the new year pessimistic but thankful. I am your host, Aaron, and this week I'm taking a small break from format to do a special thank you episode for the patrons who've kept the show alive and growing this year. So to help me with that, I have enlisted an expert, a professional of making me regret my decisions, Thomas Smith of the Philosophers in Space podcast, and a couple of other minor pods. Thomas, would you like to once again say hi to the void? Hi, yeah, that was it. Was real weird having you start the show. I, I didn't realize how big a part, you know. I was I was being yeah. the sub, I guess, for a minute. You've wandered into the mirror universe. It's yeah. very dark here. Yeah, isn't it? it's a, a whole different energy. I could get into it, I guess. Yeah. So we're yeah. here to talk about if you put a if you wrap a hot dog in a in a slice of bread, and then mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, put it in a taco. This is what, <laughs> then it's a what person. That's right. Do, yeah. <laughs> As long as it has the same memories of the hot dog, then it's a person. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, okay. Exactly, exactly. So we solved yep. it. We as long anyone? as they have a causal narrative that connects them, yeah, pretty By much. By the way, just as I was oh. naming my session file here, I typed in B the V, so you can keep that if you want. <laughs> <laughs> B the V. Yeah, yeah it's just, been a while. Uh, you over here on and B the V, everybody. It's, it's really, uh, what is that? <laughs> Brace? Is it just bracing against the void? At I that hope point? that no MB MB the V. Oh, MB, I, I hope MB. that uh, I hope that your listeners t- like start using that and you hate it and then but then everybody you know like just starts using it forever. 
That happened thanks, with thanks. me. I with appreciate something. that. Yeah, I can't yeah. remember what it, what it was, but something. And then like enough people do it, you're like, ah, all right, fine. Just I guess that's. Oh, it, it wasn't. Now. It wasn't the foot thing. It wasn't the. No, no, that'll that I'll never accept. That was the dumbest thing of all time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, no, I'm happy to have you back on. We haven't had you on since, I think, was it really since the Hamilton? I was trying to remember. That- yeah. I, well, but what the thing is, I thought I remembered coming on and you saying, oh, you haven't been on since the Hamilton thing. But I could be, I could like, be getting yeah. that wrong. I don't know. We could just, it, we spend Look, so many it, time in so many different it's a void. timelines. Yeah, it's, it's a void. <laughs> I don't know what iteration of me this is. I don't know where we are. It's fine. But we're here now. Yeah, we're here now. I assume nothing interesting has happened since the last time you were on. It's been pretty, pretty normal <laughs> yeah, out there in your life. Shoot, I hope. Wait, is this a cursing pod? It is, right? Yeah, you're fine. Okay, you're yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, shit. I hope I, it's not my job to catch everybody. Okay, well, since I was last on, <laughs> is that how this show goes? Damn it, uh, too much. Let yeah. me sum up. <laughs> yeah, there's no time. Yeah. It's the time. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's good to have you on because you are, of course, the expert in doing these thank you Q and A activities. Um, and I've been wanting to thank the patrons extra special over here on Embrace the Void. So, for folks who have not listened to our philosophers in space style thank you Q and As, the way this is going to work is first I'm going to uh, attempt to read mm-hmm. a bunch of names like I've never seen letters before in my life, and then Thomas is going to laugh at me a bunch yep. and then ask mm-hmm. a philosophy question and then i uh, guess then we're gonna both... questions yeah it's I, I, all the rest yeah. doesn't matter the point is <laughs> aaron cannot read human words that's the fun part and then everything else yep. is just window dressing or whatever they say yeah it's mostly mostly mouth noises after that <laughs> the first half of the mouth noises are a lot funnier than the second half is pretty much the way this is gonna work all right so shall we get to it then yeah sure all right, so our first set of patron folks to thank. Uh, thank you to Julia Clare, Rob Franks, C.M. Inman, Reineth, Matthew Brown, though I'm pretty sure that should be Matthew Smith, actually, uh, Eve Ash, Theo, Katmara, Liam Kofi Bright, featuring a new invisible character who doesn't speak, <laughs> Justin Scurry. <laughs> Rambo Billy, Adon Metcalf, and Dolwerhathenul. Well, thank so you all very much. You've pulled off a great heist here because I don't have yeah. the names in front of me. So that oh, now they are they are technically up in our usual space. Oh, you on did just so I can roast you, you on to. the names. Oh, wow. Yes, okay. just so you could you could name check. Here, me I if thought you, you found to. a way to get around this problem because I usually <laughs> import the names for ours. So. Yeah, mm-hmm. all right. Well, no, well, shoot. I, I knew you'd want that. to be able to. <laughs> Do it all again. Hold on. Let me pull up the names. No, oh, no. I got all of those perfect. You don't have yeah, to worry no, about it. Yeah, no, those are all fine. You can just move on to the first yeah. question. <laughs> General contact unit problem child. Oh, and it's cool. You got all different uh, new faces ever on this pod. I'm uh, no, not familiar <laughs> I know with you've any never of heard any of these names yeah, before. Yeah, any of these patrons. That's cool. It's a whole different uh, planet well, over here. How subjective is the idea of super... Is it... Oh, super... How do you pronounce that? I yeah, super why. erogatory. Why am I asking? Te- you that? I, I often get it wrong and say yeah. super erogatory. I yeah, think, super but it erogatory. is technically, I think, super erogatory. Well, it's sort of like Social Security. Everybody just says Social Security on TV all day. Right, Social Security, right. Social Security. So maybe it should mm-hmm. just be super erogatory. And I'll just say that. It probably should be. Uh, yeah. I tried to explain a super erogatory thought experiment. <laughs> See, it worked. If I had said that with confidence, no one would ever question me. Super erogatory. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it's mm-hmm. super, comma, er, comma, 
auditory mm-hmm. is what it is. It's yeah. Like you can't, yeah. yeah. Super ear auditory. <laughs> Super auditory. Thought experiment paradox you talked about once to my dad, but he couldn't understand it because it involved the idea that you don't have to have someone in a burning house. Ha- oh, save someone save in a burning someone. house. He's a <laughs> British cop, and in his worldview, you have to help other people in situations like that. Is there a non-arbitrary reason he's wrong to think that you have to risk your own safety to help others? So, yeah, this was a, a thought experiment that we, I think we talked about back way back on an episode talking about um, Francis Cam and the trolley problems kinds of stuff. And it's sort of this question of do you have a moral obligation to be willing to like put your own life at risk for the sake of saving someone else's life or does doing that sort of go above and beyond it would be good if you did it but not sort of blameworthy if you didn't engage in it um and so as, as to the question of whether there's like a non-arbitrary way to draw that line it sort of depends a little bit on what we mean by arbitrary i certainly think that people are going to draw the line differently in different places and they're going to have different arguments that are going to be both sort of cultural or circumstantial in nature a variety of different sort of justifications and i think there could be sort of a range uh, like a plurality of acceptable places to draw the line in various spots. But I do think, you know, if I really try to put on my moral realist cap and be defensive of the idea that there is sort of an objective truth out there that says, you know, no sentient being is really genuinely required to like throw themselves into the flames for the sake of protecting some other individual. I think there is something, I think there is something very plausible to that. Um, Now, how would you prove it? there's probably not a great way to do so, right? I think it's one of those intuitions that um, we can present examples, but it's not like I can create a formula that's going to show it. Uh, what, what do you think? Well, I, I'm just so fascinated because recently I've I've had uh, Lindsay Osterman on my show, and she's an Evo Psych mm-hmm. person, and mm-hmm. uh, that's a topic that I find really fascinating. And it, by the way, if you're anybody who's like, oh, I thought that field was full of shit, like, no, it's not, it's... It's been misused. Check out the episodes if you want to know. Parts of it are full of shit. Other parts of it are. I don't think it. I don't think it is. I think that the people, the parts that you think are full of shit, are people misrepresenting stuff. Like nobody's referenced. Like nobody who's one of those Mm -hmm. full of shit examples is like a cited person in the field kind of thing. But anyway, um, there and and also it turns out a lot of people like to just say they are Evo Psych or have some Evo Psych specialty when they don't. So that's interesting. Correct. But that's another um, problem. But what's interesting is. We talked about, we're talking about some of these experiments that they run and some of these like, um, you know, just talking about evolution in Mm -hmm. general. And what I, what I gather from it uh, and what it reminded me of, because I, you know, I used to read a lot about this stuff back in the day. I loved reading uh, evolution books and Dawkins books and stuff like that. It's interesting Mm -hmm. that so much of our instincts and how we, you know, how we're shaped to think about the world and all these, these impulses we have are actually kind of a statistical thing like statistically Mm -hmm. this will you know increase me or my i don't know my group or my (laughs) kin or whatever it might be my genetic uh uh, family Mm -hmm. it might increase our chances of survival and then that gets like encoded what i think is so fascinating is that gets kind of encoded into our genetics as a probability thing that we should do and then Mm -hmm. we evolved to the point where we've got you know eggheads like aaron over here and he's like, what does it all mean? And and really, you just like re-encode it into the probability thing. So like what I was going to say is picture a, a thought uh-huh. experiment where a baby is just sitting there in the water, you know, and you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. Like you would absolutely you wouldn't really even think about like 
you know, I think most people, yeah. unless you know you're you're a monster like probably Aaron or somebody, you wouldn't think about <laughs> anything. You'd just be like, oh my god, there's a baby, they're fucking jump in the water. Like, but like, I don't know if there's like an old, like someone, you know, a middle-aged person and you're like, you, you might think for a second of like, well, can I, ooh, can I manage this? Can I whatever? And I really think that probably has to do with like our evolutionary impulses. Um, if I were to guess, mm-hmm. this is just speculation, but I think it's funny that when you think of hypotheticals and you think of what your instincts would be, oftentimes it's kind of going to line up with that. Like what, what would actually be best for you know, the carrying on of genetics. So I don't know. That's just where I went with that question. Yeah, no, I think that is a major, that's one of the major arguments against the kind of moral realism that I'm sympathetic to. And it's actually the argument that I wrote my master's dissertation defending moral realism against, which is this kind of evolutionary debunking argument Hmm. that says that, you know, because humans mostly evolved our moral intuitions and our moral sense in ways that were based around it being, you know, what was more or less adaptive, that mm-hmm. we, there's no reason to think that our moral intuitions in any way track some sort of objective truth out there any mm-hmm. more than like other kinds of heuristics that we developed because they were adaptive in that way are necessarily tracking an external reality in effective ways. Um, and it, and like, you know, in defense of that position, I think it's impossible to look at things like humans and fairness and the way that yeah. we deal with questions around fairness and not see the evolutionary impact that like went right. into those models. It so is, like I, is, I absolutely concede that part of it. Yeah. Well, let me let me clarify. I wouldn't use this mm-hmm. to claim and I I think you, you know, mm-hmm. not that I I don't think I agree with your position on uh, the subjective morality thing that we debate. But even if I did or didn't, Mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't use this as an argument against it per se. I I think you could Mm -hmm. probably make, as I'm guessing you would have done in your thesis, like you can make the the argument that like, okay, it might be one thing to say we're influenced by these instincts that come from evolutionary, you know, evolution and adaptiveness and all that. But like that wouldn't. Um, tell you that that's the end of the story. Like that doesn't guarantee mm-hmm. that there's nothing else going on, or that we couldn't, you know, reason mm-hmm. our way to some right, other exactly. thingy if it exists. So I, I agree with you there. I'm not trying to say that means that all of this is nothing, but I do mm-hmm. think it's very useful to keep in mind. Like with so many absolutely um, intuitions that we have, uh, you know, I think it's incredibly useful to sit here and think, well, this is probably as a result of that, and you know. There are people who come up with like, you know, religious reasons to justify their instincts and their intuitions and people come up with other. And it's like, yeah, OK, I think it's this, though. <laughs> I think it's uh, mm-hmm. evolution, personally, is my, my, mm-hmm. my point of view. But that doesn't mean there can't be, you know, you couldn't be right about some other objective morality in some other way. Yeah, as someone who maintains that intuitions are an essential part of doing morality well, I am also believe that it's very important to keep the corrective close at hand that um, your intuitions can be highly fallible because of all of these sorts of reasons. So I think that's good. And I want to, you know, shout out here to General Contact Unit Problem Child, who's going to give us about half of our questions today and often gives us about half of our questions over on Philosophers in Space. You know, and I have have all the respect in the world because they are, you know, while they are sometimes lengthy questions, they are often um, great starters for these kinds of conversations. So... Cheers to that. For um, sure. Right, I'm gonna read be, I think names. we'd be out of business without general contact unit problem child. I think we, we would. I, I, nothing I think to we talk would about. Be, we're twiddling our thumbs for yeah. sure. Um, okay. Some more thank yous. Uh, okay, thanks to 
Uh, Iona Italia. Wrong. Thanks no, to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks to Fweth, uh, thanks to Osmium, thanks to Just John, uh, two creepy eyes that stare at me from the void, Ooh. Cameron Garrity, Nick Ray, Fix the Vote, Jim Ferrand, uh, www.saltprairie.photography, Lost Remote Control, Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb. <laughs> Uh, fat hip. <laughs> I just love Centrally how out of place planned. that one was. Like none of the other ones are anything like that. <laughs> oh, it's that's one of our top. Uh, You're like patrons. Tom Stevens, Henry Brown, <laughs> Jude Law's Canadian accent in existence makes my pussy throb. Uh, Robert, uh, <laughs> we really need to do existence over on philosophers in space. That's like gotta move oh, up the okay. list here. Get my um, pussy Centrally planned. <laughs> Essentially, planned economy of ideas and Ken Rubel. All right, not, not that bad. was good. I see you using your uh, strategy of trying to throw me off there. I respect that. Yeah, yeah. We well, we there have been a lot of innovations in this field uh, from the our other <laughs> show that people. Yeah, and I actually figured out that constant heckling made Aaron better at it. Like he, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, he's at his worst. If you, in case you aren't a listener over there. Aaron's at his worst when he's in complete silence and it's all on him. And then it's like, but like, I thought, oh, I'll mess up by I'll like do the thing where you say numbers when somebody's trying to count. You're like five, seven, you know, I tried I tried it once and he nailed every name. And so I think he actually needs, you should put on a noise machine, like a white noise machine mm-hmm, mm-hmm. while you, yeah, it would work. Okay. Marius Kot Butrakowski. I have asks, an adversarial mind, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> Why are first and second year philosophy students so obnoxious and acting like they've been drinking from the fountain of all knowing. Now, that sounds unfair to me, but <laughs> I mean, it's both fair and unfair, right? It's well, unfair I feel like be- you would have that in every field, you know, like probably the right. first and second year whatevers are going to be like, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, everybody in college they they say uh, things are sophomoric for a reason. I think like you you mm-hmm. get exposed to a bit of you know, college is fucking amazing, especially for someone like me or or someone who you know if. If you don't live in a household that's full of like, you know, two college professor teachers and whatever, um, getting to college and being exposed to like real uh, um, just, I don't know, knowledge, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, like (laughs) critical thought and, uh, you know, uh, book smarts, getting exposed to that is a is a real trip. And it makes you feel like, oh, shit, okay, I've got the knowledge now. So I'm going to talk about that in a way. And, you know, I feel like it's fine to be excited about stuff. But, yeah, I guess. There's also the trope of like they think they know everything and talk down to other people, maybe. Yeah, I was gonna say at first, um, it's, it's probably you could just write it off as Dunning Kruger, but actually, I was just seeing on Twitter there's mm-hmm. been some some new data coming out that suggests yeah. that Dunning Kruger doesn't replicate. <laughs> so I still, I still, on the other hand, still believe based on my limited knowledge about psychology that Dunning Kruger is real, and I'm just gonna continue to. Well, I saw, yeah, I saw some. mixed things on that. Somebody, <laughs> no. I, I saw somebody arguing with it, and they had a graph, mm-hmm. and I was like, yeah, that does look like the graph. So I don't, yeah, I don't, see. I haven't really delved that deeply into that, but it could be something for us to look into. Right. I think we've nailed it. But I mean, yeah. I think it is unfair in the sense that like not even just, um, you know, kids, you know, like students who first go to college act this way. But in my experience, all humans everywhere 
at yeah. all ages of life are generally fountains of obnoxious all-knowingness self-included like <laughs> Pretty much. i just think this is a universal feature like when you're young you're stupid and all-knowing and when you're old you're mostly stupid and all-knowing and yeah. like it just you know what flavor what spin you put on it changes i think depending on where you are so like we could talk about the particular spin that like philosophy students put on their obnoxious all-knowing you know link to the stanford encyclopedia and and uh call checkmate kind of behavior i guess but like i think you'll find like you said similar versions everywhere yeah i would think so and since we don't mm-hmm. not, you know i guess i was a business major so it's not maybe a slightly different thing <laughs> but like if i was like a, i don't know a math major or a programming something yeah i'm sure there's versions of that and everything I mean, I've never known a business major who was in any way obnoxious or all-knowing. That's just uh, just generally not been my experience with people who have that particular degree. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Shall we add some more names? I, I specialize in being a business major and and focusing in accounting and being like, I don't know how any of this works. Like, I pa- I passed with flying colors. You know, got had a pretty high GPA. I doubt I know anything about accounting right now, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't, you strike yeah. me as someone who would avoid the pit trap of Coke, which I feel like is sort of the, <laughs> the central hub of problems with yeah. business people. Yeah, I wasn't like, I, who would be the big shot, you know, annoying fuckers in business school? Probably be like finance. That was, And that mm-hmm, was close mm-hmm. to accounting, but the finance people who probably figured they were going to like, you know, become hedge fund managers or something, I'm guessing. So maybe maybe that's where you'd find that more. Whereas accountants are like, I, I don't want to talk to people. I just want to <laughs> get a job yeah, right. in a closet where I just do numbers all day. <laughs> right. You watch Office Space aspirationally, basically. Yeah, like, that guy rules. Why, is, why isn't he the focus of the movie? <laughs> uh, that's great. All right. Some more names then. Um, thanks to the testimony of Mushroom. Just John from now on. T, uh, two for T podcast, uh, Lewis Kenos, uh, Thomas corrupted me into buying a quarter pounder and I'm so mad with cheese, <laughs> Brendan H, Grant Webster, full name, David Rabinowitz and Catherine Rabinowitz, Preston Belvin, Belvins, <laughs> former internet spaceship politician, wait, I'm curious, general contact unit problem child, David Love and Ken Johns. That was Preston Blevins, by the way. I think you said Blevins, but that's okay. You're right. I did say Bell. Yep, you're totally right. All right. Hey, but hey. we do get one of your um But like if you uh, tell me that you're moments. actually dyslexic, then I have to shut up and never tease you again. That's the problem. So let's pretend I was never diagnosed. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, we got the uh, we got the DVD menu moment, but uh when it's general contacting your problem child, it does kind of feel like we we cheated a little bit. We popped the game it's genie like it's on that It's like a really one. big box that just yeah. hits all four quarters. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't even move. Like, it's just <laughs> fitted to the screen. Uh, yeah, good point. All right. General Contact Human Problem Child asks, is being able to embrace the void a privilege? So, like, whenever some injusti- injustice happens in the world, I get mad, then try to accept it, then move on. The thing is, I'm able to do that because it's usually an injustice that doesn't affect me. Like recently, there was a court ruling in the UK that will make it way harder for trans kids to get hormone blockers. I'm able to keep myself from welling up with impudent rage over that ruling, partly because I know that I know that would be bad mentally, but also ultimately because I'm a cis man, I won't be one of the people who ends up committing suicide because of it. 
what do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is an issue that is near and dear to my heart. We talked about it way, way back when we first started doing Embrace the Void on the episode about acceptance, where I talked about sort of my experience with, you know, a bunch of these different wisdom traditions growing up, like mindfulness and Buddhism and Taoism, all these sorts of things that all sort of circle around this idea of acceptance. Um, And Stoicism is one that's very popular right now in a lot of sort of Western circles. And there is, depending on the way that these acceptance is formulated, for always for me, some degree of ambivalence about what that acceptance means for the social justice that I think is important to be actively engaged in in the world. And And like, I think... You know, where I ultimately come down on these things is that it's a balancing act that you you have to let go of some of it. There has to be some of the acceptance, but there has to be a mix of the acceptance and continuing somehow to work on the project. So either you can find some way to be motivated without needing to have that impudent rage driving it or, you know, you let enough rage in in order to properly motivate you i'm not sure what the ultimate i'm not sure if there's one right answer for everybody um but i think it it is a problem that is often i think glossed over in those kinds of traditions um as you know focus on making your internal states you know balanced and stable and happy and worry less about trying to turn the world into a more just world um and i think that's a corrective that can go too far for a lot of people. Hmm. Yeah, this is a tough one. I, I, cause like I, I, well, I don't want to like, you know, I don't want to fuck with your show, but I'm, I don't really embrace the void in this way. Like I don't really have that kind of, Mm -hmm. I, I take embrace the void to mean different things. Like I, I take I'd actually embrace... leave it open ended so it can okay. mean different things for different people. I don't have one right way to describe it. Embracing the void is like, I, accept the meaninglessness of life for me. Mm-hmm. Like I accept the just absolute stupid, but I don't do that. Like a lot of people and I'm, you know, I'm not judging. It's just the way I am. I don't really do that with suffering of other people. I find suffering of other people in the world to be worse than my personal suffering. If anything, I don't mm-hmm. like, it's, I'd rather something bad happen to me or something. I mean, I'm sure that that has a limit, I'm sure. But like, I tend to be the things that depress me is like, you know, the suffering that goes on in the rest of the world in, in so many ways. Um, that's what I get constantly depressed about. And the fact that, you know, we live in this awful fucking place that there, no, there is no God and nobody made sure to uh, put any limit on the, the kinds of suffering that people have had to face throughout the years. That really affects me. So I'm not, I don't embrace mm-hmm. the void in that way. I'm like, oh, it would joke about, you know, uh, you know, uh, gallows humor about it. I don't really do that for some reason. I don't really take it that way. I, I, so for me, embracing the void is like, yeah, this whole thing's a fucking pointless nothing, you know, mm-hmm. and that just, just in that. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure what, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure how to answer the question for the other person. I, I don't really like stoicism for some reason. I'm not really sure why. Um, I think mm-hmm. I've thought about it a little, I, what's funny is I would have been like fucking Marcus Aurelius up through age 20 something like that was me. Like I just didn't. You know, like mm-hmm. I, or maybe in th- in my teens anyway, I think because of the way I was raised, like that I've been all about that. I've been like, yeah, I don't know, nothing affects me. Fuck it, or you know, <laughs> I can I can maintain a stoic attitude through everything. 
But like I eventually realized that wasn't actually who who I was. And mm-hmm. I think that the for me the I don't know if it's contradiction or what you would call it, but the 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 trick to all that is like yeah, but you have to have the attitude first to have the attitude. You know, like you have to it's mm-hmm. See if I can explain this. I guess it's kind of mm-hmm. meta, but it's like you can sit there. If something bad happens, you can be depressed about it or you can take the stoic attitude, say, just loosely speaking. But mm-hmm. the motivation to make a decision on either of those things is also a thingy. And so it, it like requires a stance first to, to be able to even make that decision. And the reason I don't mm-hmm. sit here and go like, well, I need to be stoic about you know, whatever suffering and the blah, blah, blah is because I don't care about being stoic about it. Like there, there need to be some other thing. Like if, if there's some reason, Mm -hmm. maybe if I, you know, maybe if I was in the middle of a conflict or something and it was like, well, in order to get through what's happening, whatever that is, I don't know. Uh, you, you need to just kind of suppress some emotions here and just focus. I actually can do that, but that's because I would need, I'd be focused on some other task. You, I, I almost think what, what goes underneath either stoicism or, or any other orientation toward stuff like that is some orientation that comes first. Like you have to have some mm-hmm. uh, objective or some motivation to take one stance or the other. And that's the thing that to me, it doesn't, it's all, it's tubes all the way down or whatever you want. Turtles all the way down. Yeah. Luck, it doesn't like, right? I, For me, it's, in it's order to be thing, a stoic, right? I would have to have some dry desire to be a stoic. I don't have that. Like, okay, cool that you're stoic. Yeah. I don't, whatever. Well, this, this is my big issue with stoicism is not so much the don't have emotions part of it as the it has this view that you have an internal control hmm. more in a way that you don't have a control of external things. And like what I think you're sort of circling around here is the idea that like, as we've talked with, you know, when we talked about moral luck, that whether you end up having the kind of disposition, essentially, like the question was asking, whether you have the kinds of privileged position in order to make it so that you can adopt that kind of stoic approach and have that sort of work out for you is i think a matter of luck i think it's oh, exactly the opposite though i really? think that uh it's a privilege to not be stoic i think that when you are a an immigrant laborer you don't have the fucking time or privilege to sit there and be like man i this fuck i got a but you know like you just just like uh, another day of fucking 12 16 hour work and then I'll be just, like, those are the most stoic people there are, you know, is the people who are faced with these things and have to just do it to survive. Like, I think that's where the real stoicism yeah, this is. This is an interesting question, actually, because there's there's the classic example of um, Epictetus, who was a stoic, who was um, crippled and suffered constant physical pain. Hmm. And so it's interesting to think about, like, someone in that kind of situation. Do you still say to that person that they're ability to claim that other people's suffering that people should just change their perspective towards their own suffering rather than like thinking that they can actually improve their lot in life um that that's not a, you know it's not a form of privilege if it's coming from someone who's also experiencing a kind of suffering that is beyond their control in that kind of way yeah i think maybe even the example that general contact unit problem child brings up Maybe, maybe mm-hmm. I can clarify this again. I don't know if that's a stoicism or at least it might be a stoicism that isn't meaningful. Like if I sit here and I'm, I hear about some awful injustice, I guess you could make an argument that like, oh, if I'm not stoic enough, it will paralyze me from being able to do something. But for the most part, 
it's kind of it's almost the opposite. Like there are people who get too turned off to the suffering of others and they don't do shit, you know, like they just ignore mm. it versus when you're actually suffering from something, when something awful is happening to you, you're kind of forced into a stoicism in some, in most ways. I mean, there aren't a lot of people or maybe or you, you don't fall hear about them. Or, suppose, yeah, or you right? fall apart. Like, <laughs> that's what I mean. Or it could almost be a selection effect. Like you basically you have to be stoic to get by. In some ways, You're like edging into bad times creates strong men. Territory <laughs> um, I mean, well, look, but maybe I, I, I mean that half jo- half critically, half jokingly, like like in the sense that it is probably true that like you know severe adversity. Um, well, when you, know, you talk about stoicism, and, what else are you talking about? If you talk about someone who's being a stoic with no challenges, is that meaningful? There are no challenges no, to your life. There could be degree. There's certainly degrees of of challenges, right? And well, but I get, okay. Of, the like point I'm trying to be. make is the question is framing it like being stoic about other people's suffering, and I I don't know that that's where the stoicism really happens. Is all I'm saying. Like what I was the point mm-hmm. I was going to make is the the function of stoicism in my mind, if I would and I could just be wrong about it or have a different opinion about it, would be make sure that in the face of suffering you are able to keep it together enough to do what you need to do, you know, one way or the other. And Mm -hmm. in the case of hearing about the suffering of others, you actually may want to feel it a little more to do the things that you need to do, which is to advocate or to donate or to uh, volunteer, whatever, you you know what I mean? So like the function of stoicism for me would be more when you are somebody who is facing some sort of trauma or whatever it is to get through it, not... For somebody else who needs to hear about it and go about their day, that's not really for me. That's a weird version of stoicism, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think my, what I would say is now we should move on. But what I would say is I think stoicism will have a hard part because stoicism's argument is based around what you can and can't control, and it's and it's going to say you shouldn't feel those sorts of negative emotions so strongly about things you can't control and i think it's going to be hard to keep mm. other people's suffering out of that camp out of that category yeah, sure that um but because you know that being said there is of course plenty of stoics who are engaged in a bunch of like social justice stuff and like people square these sorts of problems in their minds in various ways all the time um it's just um, these were concerns. I actually talked about this with Massimo way back on the show a while ago. So if folks are curious to hear a lengthy discussion of stoicism from, um, you know, with someone who is a, a more sort of thoroughgoing stoic, um, definitely listen back to those. Um, okay, more names. Uh, thanks to Ratho, Michael Marenko, Sky, Donkey Hote. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, Nestor Buen. Jason Lee Baez, Malact, Aaron is Zuktmoy. How else could he pronounce it so easily? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cruel. Uh, Cowbell, Sale of Ignorance, Jonathan Yance Jones, uh, Piter, uh, Trilobite Tark, <laughs> Blake Beckman, and Peter in Korea. All right. Throwing in alien names just to out me like that. It's not fair. So Chad T asks, can you go into more what the moral weight that the interests a tree might... Okay. Am I having a stroke? Yep, no, you're or fine. That? Okay. You're, you're fine. Can you go into more what the moral weight that the interests a tree might have is? 
I, that's not a good sentence. I'm sorry. Sure. Versus sure. Okay. other interests, or perhaps <laughs> balancing between the endemic life in an arid, high-stress environment versus working to change that environment to a less stressed one, which could impact that endemic life. You may have to uh, philosoph explain that one to me. Sure. This is actually um, coming from a conversation that Chad and I have been having in oh, DMs okay. recently. He's a friend of the show, and he's... Uh, been doing some work around dealing with sort of environmental trade-off questions like, you know, what if I want to deal with climate change by taking a desert and turning it into a rainforest so that it absorbs a bunch more carbon or something? Like, what are the ethical implications of taking one ecosystem and terraforming it into another ecosystem? Hmm. You know, what are the implications of doing that if it's for our interests? Um, and so he's tying it here to um, another question that I that I... Um, mess around with sometimes which is do trees themselves or, or plant life have interests what how do we weigh the interests of those entities against the interest of beings that we are more sort of sympathetic to seeing as sentient um so those that's sort of what he's getting at here so my you know i'm I'm a I'm a terrible philosopher. I'll just open with that first of all, right? When it comes to ethical questions like this, I don't have what I think is a sort of well-defined taxonomy for what ethical principles should be applied in what order to give you the right account. I think that I'm sympathetic to intuitions behind sort of a lot of the competing positions here. Um, and so I try my best to find my way to what seems like a plausible compromise position a lot of the time but i don't feel like highly confident that that's the correct way to approach these kinds of issues so taken to the extreme for example you know cutting down a tree for absolutely no reason even if it didn't harm anyone in terms of like you know climate change issues or something still seems to me to be violating the interests of an entity that has a capacity to flourish and that you are depriving it of its ability to flourish. And I think that ha that has to carry some moral weight, at least. Otherwise, we mm -hmm. end up having to say there's nothing wrong with cutting down a tree absent, you know, other consequences uh, no, for other I, entities. Uh, I think I'm good with saying that. There's nothing wrong yeah. with cutting it. That seems you're, easy Okay, you're good me. with saying that. Yeah. I don't Why? think that you – well, because something like a tree is entirely mechanical. I don't see how it can have interests. Um, short, like a – does a boulder that's sitting at the top of a hill have an interest, you know, and then if you, like, roll Trees it down the hill. are qualitatively different, I think, from, a, like, substantially different from <laughs> I, a boulder that's, like, I don't, they're not I don't near know kinetic they energy released. Well, in, insofar as you are, right? Like, we well, could say you're basically just I a better boulder. I think personhood and, and intentions <laughs> and whatever, I, I think having a brain is a very much different experience than not having a brain, personally. But you that. also acknowledge that, that you are fundamentally sort of a deterministic part of the universe that is being propelled forward um, in much the same way that the boulder will be propelled yeah. down the hill. Not what, really. what I, say I think is, having I, a brain I think... is a huge difference than not having a brain. I think there, you can't – you can formulate an, a, a definition of something that's an intention in a person – way easier than you can in a tree. I don't I don't Yeah, know. I just don't think that you can solely tie interests to entities that can formulate mental states. Like I think entities can have interests without interests. having mental states. I don't think that's true. I just disagree, I guess. And like I'm Do you I'm think that do you, wait, well for example, do you think that um, you know, a third trimester fetus has interests? 
Do you think that third trimester fetuses don't have mental states? Because you'd be wrong. Okay, so would you say that the enti- that like a fetus develops interest at the moment that it becomes developed enough in its brain to have mental states? Uh, I don't know what the definition of person like personhood is a tough one, but I think mental <laughs> states are pretty necessary for it. Yeah. So I would argue, and I think, um, so so in Singer's paper, for example, where he talks about animals having interests and therefore being morally I think an- considerable. I think animals them. have interests. Hang on, hang on, hang <laughs> okay. on. He's, he ties it in that original paper to the fact that having phenomenal consciousness is necessary for having interests. Yeah. I think he has since backed off of that position, and I don't think it is a, I don't think it's actually a tenable position. I think mm. we can reasonably talk about the interests of sufficiently sophisticated systems low entropy high complexity self-sustaining systems that have genuine goal-directed behavior without having phenomenal consciousness about that genuine goal-directed behavior i think uh yeah i think if i were to say the biggest challenge to my position it would be you know when we talk about a chinese room situation Mm -hmm. um yeah and but but I think the issue there would be that we can't know if something has mental states or not for sure. You know, right, not which that, I like think it puts us back on giving things the benefit of the doubt. Giving things the trees. benefit of the doubt, but that's a very different thing. It's a very <laughs> different thing trees. to say, <laughs> what? I mean, if we're going to give things the benefit of the doubt, if we can't prove otherwise, we're back to like, how do you know genuinely that no, like, we give a, things a sequoia the doesn't of... have some sort of consciousness? Oh, I know. I No, I'm not giving a tree the benefit of the doubt on whether or not it has mental states. That's not. Because you're so, a substrate chauvinist. If the, if, the, if the issue is, you know, I, my position is still that things need to have mental states to have intentions. And the challenge, like the Chinese room is not a challenge to that position. It's just a challenge in that. Okay, but there are going to be things that probably don't have mental states, but that you need to treat as though they do because of the Mm -hmm. risk. That doesn't change Mm -hmm. my position that things that don't like if I were somehow to have some God's eye view and know that something was had no mental states, then I would still say, oh, okay, then it has no interests. Okay. I obviously we can't get all the way into this one. Um why not? I think, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, I know. Um but <laughs> no, just, just to come back a little bit to Chad's question, I do think it's ultimately morally untenable to decide that you're gonna like terraform a, a desert into um, you know, a, a, like a carbon sink for the sake of improving things for human beings, right? For the sake of correcting like avoiding large-scale climate change that harms human beings you're using an environment as a means to an end in a way that seems morally problematic to me even if the consequences i think are good and you know if if you want personally we can cash that out in terms of the the loss of sentient biodiversity within that ecosystem as mm-hmm. it gets replaced yeah i think okay. it's entirely as uh, be, as it affects other people other interests other okay. other things i don't do it for itself <laughs> And I can't, furthermore, I can't really even think of a thought experiment. Like you'd have to say, you know, in a universe. I I have several, but I'll save them for a philosopher's in space episode, apparently. I mean, well, luckily we we have, you know, a chance to do follow up on some of these questions at some point. Well, it's your show. Right. Um, okay, so more thanks here. Uh, thanks to the, um, that sense that you've definitely forgotten something important. <laughs> v. Frank, 
Teacher Martin. Anonymous ethicist, not a serial killer at all, just asking questions. Um, intellectual dark wave. Um, Oak, uh, Oak, okay, Oppie. Um, grand Priapism. I want to be the tempeh in a Foucault and Camus sandwich. John Bartlett. Liam Skoda. Jake the fake Jake. I'm vegan heathen. Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. No commute, so behind on podcasts, and Michael Sullivan. All right, and uh, guess who this question is from? Any guesses? I'll give you <clears throat> give me any, any number of guesses. General Contacting mm-hmm. a Problem Child asks, how would you feel about breaking up the U.S. into several smaller countries? Done and done. Given how big the U.S. is and how much ideology varies between different regions, I sometimes think that if there was a way to do it peacefully, it'd be a good idea to break it up. The problem with that idea is there are some parts of the U.S. that would just immediately turn into Christian fascist dictatorships if they were left to their own devices, like suppose California and New York had the opportunity to leave the U.S. and become awesome social democracies. Would Would they have any moral obligation to do that, not to do that, so that Alabama can't use the president to leave and become Gilead? (laughs) <laughs> I can answer this yeah. all day. Yeah, um, I think this not only is this a thing that uh, should happen, I think it's a thing that should happen. No, not only do I think it's not, <laughs> what was the question? Not only do I think it is a morally good thing to do, I think we should do it, is I guess what I meant to say. Uh-huh. Um, because when you think about it, the more the country splits up in into, uh, you know, the more people move to these heavily populated states and away from... Uh, bullshit, terrible states in the South that are crap, um, like you know <laughs> Mississippi and all these states that are you know the. And by being crap, I mean the the governing you know Republican Party is crap. Not that everybody in the state is crap, but like the more mm-hmm. that happens, the more and more this becomes. You know, think of this like like pretend that it started that way and then like a government o- overtook it. You know, rather than thinking like okay, the u- history of the United States is such and such. Imagine if we were just separate states and then one Mm -hmm. government or the other was like, but we're going to oversee both of them now. Like we're going to take over. You'd be like, oh, my God, that's that would be like if you told, uh, you know, Mexico and Canada that, sorry, now the United States controls you, too. You'd be like, well, that doesn't Mm -hmm. make any sense. But because it has this history, it's like, well, no, of course, they're just two different states and within the same country. Um, I, I know I didn't put that the best way, but the more. The more time goes on, the more it will be like that because of the stupid electoral college and the Constitution, which uh, has a fundamental, uh, I, I guess it's not a contradiction, but it has a fundamental impossibility to it in that they didn't foresee, I guess, that so many people would be in these couple states and there is absolutely no mechanism for that. You know, like imagine, again, imagine a hypothetical where Four billion people lived in California and New York, and then uh, fifty people or forty-eight people were in each of the other states. It would then it would, there's nothing you can do. There's no mechanism in the Constitution to deal with that problem. You would still have a president decided by fifty people or whatever, 48, 46, The minimum would probably be even less. It could be decided by twenty-seven people or something, and you would still have laws decided by those people. The senators they'd all have to double as senators though. So maybe we'll, well maybe we'll make it uh, ninety-six people. Uh, oh, I got to be a House of Representatives. Okay, it'll be, but it'll be in the hundreds. Anyway, the point is, there is no mechanism in the Constitution <laughs> to deal with that. There's nothing you could do. There's absolutely no constitutional remedy for that. 
because it deci- it decided that you would need a certain you know super majority of states to decide something. I I guess a backing background assumption for them for the founders was the states would all forever be pretty much equal or something in population. I guess they never they never really foresaw how bad it could get. So we would have to do that. I mean, at what point? Again, take it to its extreme. California would just be like, uh, okay, why would we be in this? <laughs> like, what is the point? And uh, I think as as for the Gilead thing, um, I think not only is that already kind of happening. <laughs> I mean, I guess there are limits. It's, it is true that like the federal government does provide some baseline, you know, to the horror that can go on in southern states. Some mm-hmm. amount of baseline to that. Um, but like, imagine if we actually did... Uh, separate, uh, uh, you know, from from the United States, California, New York, and a couple other states are like all of the economy, all of the wealth, all of the power. I mean, they would be fucked, you know, Georgia or something or Mississippi. Oh, not yeah. Georgia now. I don't know. So <laughs> maybe I'm a little more sanguine actually on you on this than a little more. Okay, a little less sympathetic here, I guess. Partly just because. I think probably just because watching, you know, Brexit happen and just be a mm-hmm. giant disaster that like I'm I'm with you when you're talking about all of the problems with our current system and I guess I'm just not not super confident that like mass secession and division into, you know, like balkanization is actually going to bring about the kinds of, you know, changes that we want partly because then you immediately are like stuck having to renegotiate some sort of European Union like situation for well, all the states. Well, keep in mind that, that the European Union is a relationship between two d- different countries and among different countries. Like we could be different. I know. Yeah. I know that's what ahead. I'm saying though. Is that like I, I think what you're going to end up with there is us reconstructing something that looks like our federal government, but is called something more like the EU, and like you have stronger state autonomy, which gets us more of like. In Articles of Confederation, which I think is not actually moving in the direction that we necessarily want to be going in. I mean, I think it's it's a really know. interesting I, question. I, I think that yeah. you're right in that on on a, on on one level of analysis, it wouldn't help that much. On one level of analysis, you would say, well, California and other big blue states are already able to provide a bunch of stuff. Like they're not restricted. You know, again. <clears throat> This is based on the current state of affairs. If the Supreme Court were to, for example, decide that fetuses have a fundamental right to life, um, then all of a sudden we're having a completely different conversation. Then then that is the tyranny of a Christian fundamentalist court telling every state they can't even have any abortion at, at, at any time. And that would mm-hmm. be that, – that's when you start – if it starts to get that bad, which it really could, hypothetically, we're not that far away from that. Then that would be. Then I think that would change your answer to this question. Maybe like, okay, well, no, we're not going to have mm-hmm. these fucking states decide that that you know we can't have basic medical care over here uh, in the mm-hmm. in the form of uh, that. But like, but I think if you look at it uh, as an effect on the world, it actually changes. So like, yes, um, if we let Mississippi, for example, they become their own state, and you know, California and New York become their amazing, you know, socialist uh, <laughs> social democracy. Mm-hmm. You might say like, well, you know, things don't change that much for California, New York and and Mississippi, you know, like just just among them. Yeah, sure. Things go a little more, you know, in the social democracy side there and then things get a little shittier in Mississippi. But for me, the the key part is you don't have um, a Christian fundamentalist minority 
uh, with the power to be in the White House and decide foreign affairs and stuff. Like that's where it could make a huge mm-hmm. difference. Like imagine, imagine yeah. how little power on its own Mississippi would have in the world. Like if Mississippi became a state, you wouldn't be talking about like, oh man, Mississippi intervening in uh, the Middle East again. You know, you'd be like, no, mm-hmm. they don't mm-hmm. have the resources. You know, so them having that amount, it would actually be better for the rest of the world. Perhaps not as amazing, you know, wouldn't have as drastic an effect on the actual U.S. states. Maybe. Yeah. No, I think that's totally right that the risk of federalism is the risk of minority rule in that kind of way that we're currently dealing with. So I think that's um, certainly a fair trade off there. Um, And I I guess I just sort of like I just want to remind folks that like New York and California becoming these socialist um, utopias is not going to look like Bioshock where they literally like lift off the ground into airships and (laughs) are freed from these other people. Like you're still going to be trading with the same people on the same planet. Well, that's Um, fine. We trade with all kinds of countries. I mean, that's that's, so my objected objection to what you said earlier was we could very easily form different countries, but still not do a Brexit. Like we could still have some union for trade and for travel that looks fine, you know? Right. Sure. Some sort of very extra constitutional activity. I'm, I'm fully for it. Um, what? All right. Extra more thank you. Why would that be extra constitutional? Well, because there's no constitutional mechanism for it. So assuming you'd be going outside the constitution in some way. No. Um, uh, oh, oh, with the actual secession? To break, yeah, breaking into oh, yeah, yeah, states Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, No, yeah. guaranteed. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. Okay, great. Um, all right. So... Thanks to, oh, so close, Chad T, um, Daniel Tepsa, Dave Maslich, Andrew Snyder, Dane Rathbone, Timothy Redacted, Tricicular Manslaughter, Sweet Jesus 2020 is Almost Over, Sam Dono, Petrosaur Hex, Hunter Ash, The Person Who Controls the Spice Controls the Void, Ben <laughs> Schnall, Jimmy SM, and Terrified Will Be Pecked to Death by Lame Ducks. Uh, it's Danilo, by the way. Danilo. Danilo. Uh, yep. Fair enough. Fair enough. Just, fair uh, enough. <laughs> yeah. Cool, 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 okay. cool. Aaron is... Oh, we were close on this one-ish, right? Or am I mm-hmm. back to... Yeah, yeah. Aaron no, is Zug, Zugtmoy. See, I'm not uh-huh. that because I... How else could he pronounce so easily, asks. Oh, this is a five-paragraph <laughs> essay. Okay. Ethically speaking, which is more important, actively doing good or passively avoiding harm? Oh, that's an interesting question. My main issue with utilitarianism is that it essentially requires us to be precogs when in reality we usually have no idea which course of action will actually bring about the most utility. This even extends to consequentialism. It seems to work only in retrospect uh, as we so rarely can be certain about the actual outcome. So are we essentially – so we are essentially making our best guess, rolling the bones <laughs> and hoping we thought it out properly. But that seems pretty pointless as a tool to help us make decisions. Well, So is it more important to err on the side of uh, acting with good intentions and hope and hoping we did the moral calculus correctly or not acting unless we are reasonably sure of the outcome? If it's the former, does that make the naturally risk averse individuals like myself more morally deficient than someone more willing to take risks? Again, it feels as though that question can only be answered in retrospect, which makes it feel like a pretty useless tool. It just feels like utilitarianism <laughs> vastly overestimates our individual intellects, particularly in a world like ours where the moral calculus of any action is obscured by endless layers of harm and obfuscation. There's no ethical consumption under capitalism after all. And now that I think about it, this was kind of the entire point of the good place, wasn't it? So maybe this is too big of a topic for one <laughs> Q&A show. End of question. 
That's a good question. Um, yeah, so I mean, obviously, there's more there than we can possibly cover. Um, but I, I will say, for starters, I think in defense, and, and you'll appreciate this, right? In defense mm-hmm. of the consequentialists, I do not think that it is true that it is a useless tool yeah. merely because we can't have certainty about the future. I think we can have reasonably accurate predictions about the future and be judged proportional to how reasonable our predictions about potential costs and benefits would actually be. I assume that was the first place you wanted to go to for corrections there. Um, Yeah, I, I think it's definitely, well, we're, we're late on time, so I'll just say, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, and then, like, I think the harder question is the, like, actively doing good versus passively avoiding yeah, harm, which comes up. Yeah. And it comes up a lot, especially in, like, medical ethics stuff, where you have um, the, the sort of conflict between um, beneficence and non-maleficence. So, the difference between avoiding harm and actively pursuing good. Um, I think... Generally speaking, people think that you have a higher moral priority obligation for avoiding actively doing harm or, you know, like avoiding avoiding doing harm rather than having to actively do good. Right. So like the basic sort of minimalist conception of your moral obligations is you can't just casually go around causing harm to a bunch of people and then like we hope that you will go above and beyond that in terms of actively trying to do good towards others what are your intuitions on on that sort of distinction well there? actively good, doing good i'm trying to think i think the, the place i'm struggling is like what are the actual moral decisions that we really make day to day you know mm-hmm. or even like in your in your life i mean we can come up with all these hypothetical trolley problems and all this bullshit to like try to find these corner <laughs> cases. But like, what do we do in our daily life? Is it really so hard to know what the consequences of something will be? You know, like, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. furthermore, I don't, as far as the, there's no ethical consumption in capitalism. I mean, I don't think I really agree with that. I, I mean, are you going to tell someone who's starving and they buy a fucking bit of food? Sorry, you're being unethical for doing that. Like what? I don't think that's true. Um, that's, but, but I suppose that's Mm -hmm. under a certain definition of ethics, but I think that that, again, there could be a limitation to what you're looking at as consequences, you know, our, Mm -hmm. if you, if you put a stop to where consequences, you know, end where, where your calculations end, then maybe you could say like, oh yeah, that's, that has negative eating a thing has negative consequences on whoever, you know, uh, if it's, you know, laborers who are who are working too, having to work too, way too hard for too little to pick the fucking vegetables, then they're blah, blah, blah. But like, you also have to, I, I don't think you just stop the consequences there. You, I think you can look back and say, wait a minute though, what are the consequences of you not being able to eat? You know, that is also mm-hmm. consequences. What are, what are the consequences of everyone in your position not being able to eat or not being able to, you know, buy anything? You know, so like, I think you have to take a broader view of what consequences actually are. Um, mm-hmm. for, for that particular thing. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know as far as the, like doing good, I'm trying to think of my everyday life. Like I'm trying to think of where a decision would come down to like, well, should I do thing a, because that is maybe doing good versus take, you know, action B is like mitigating harm. And I'm, I'm having a hard time coming up with a good, like dichotomy there. Like when that would happen. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you, you got anything, but I'm trying, I'm trying to think. No, I mean, I think these are, you know, just tricky stuff. I think um, 
I don't have easy solutions on these trade-off kind of questions either. Um, I think I, – I also, like, I would say I'm probably, I guess, more on the demanding end of the scale to some extent when it comes to ethics and that I think mm. you do have positive moral obligations to do good that are not simply yeah. reducible to avoiding causing harm in some way. Um, so that that's certainly more than some will, will expect. Um, okay. But I realize we're short on time, yep. so I will wrap up the names that's and then we'll question. do one more question. Um, we can. We got one more from Caleb Keith that we can do, and then Let's I've got to put it. you through the enlightening round because you haven't done oh, it before. Sure. So we're gonna add that on. So all right, I'm gonna go through all the, all the rest of the names here first. So thanks to here we go, uh, the Writer's Beard Show, Randall Nelson Peterman, Aaron at Aripsa, um, Marius Kot Butrakowski, Clyde Rathbone. One is first, but two is a close second. Patrick, <laughs> anonymous pseudonym. Tarn Somerville Fletcher, Pandemics Suck, Jordan A. Patterson, uh, Dread Zephyr, Math Makes Sense, Thomas's Shitlord Assassin, <laughs> Clifton Stuckey, Jess Abels, um, Super Erogatory Equals Moral Extra Credit, <laughs> Flufftastic Torsten Peel of the Satanic Temple, Zachary McCloslind, uh, Just Some Random Patreon, uh, Carrie Knoll, Andrew Seidel's butt is into buttress stuff, <laughs> Shane, Gretchen Koch, uh, Jeremiah Traeger, former internet spaceship recruiter, um, Niall O'Donnell, The Audience, Drifa Johnstatir. Uh, Good luck with that There's a bunch of emphasis on that one that are just not going to happen. I apologize. Uh, Paul Freeland, Ryan Ake, 2020, It Just Keeps Happening, <laughs> yeah. Frederick Dumont, and finally, The Godless Re- uh, Revolution. Well, Whew. I'll give you a B minus. That wasn't that could okay. have been worse for the whole thing. That's right. Uh, yeah. The gentle bots B minus. Ca- yeah. That's fair. <laughs> Caleb Keefe asks, for a utilitarian, would it be more ethical to do everything possible to create a utility monster in order to maximize utility or to do everything possible to stop the creation of said utility monster so as to maximally disperse utility? Can you mm-hmm. uh just quickly redefine what the utility monster is in this sense? Yeah, so he's backdooring us here into Roko's Basilisk, essentially. Um, so well, the utility I am monster... into buttress stuff, so I don't mind being backdoored. <laughs> you don't mind being backdoored. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's good. Yeah, the utility monster is sort of like the opposite of a utility pump. It's an entity that, because of its ability to experience more utility than other beings or experience mm. it in some higher refined kind of way, there's different versions of utility monsters, Um the the problem for sort of basic um uh um sort of sorry am- amalgamating style utilitarianism right so styles mm. of utilitarianism that just lump all the utility and say here's how much you got as a oh, result purely you that's just the want thing you maximum do. points basically right right if you're just okay. trying to get maximum points the concern is if you have yeah. a utility monster that can rack up a million utility points do you feed all your t- utility into that thing rather than yeah. distributing it out to humans who are are inferior at experiencing utility yeah, that's interesting. I I don't know how, how do you even experience utility though. Like, what does that mean? Right. 
Well, so this the original version of this is sort of viewed sort of suspicious, like like as, as a questionable thought experiment in the sense of like it's not very clear what it would look like for an entity to even be the sort of entity that we have in mind. So things that have been posited. Well, I think that. Um... You know, there is an argument even, uh, you know, for me who I, I think I'm somewhat consequentialist, although I still recognize the challenges of um, more population ethics kind of stuff like we've talked about. Maybe it's not population mm-hmm. ethics, but, um, you this, know. This are, is part of population ethics. For oh, sure. is it? Okay. Going mm-hmm. going for like an average, you know, benefit mm-hmm. over a bunch of people versus, you know, like preventing a low thing. I think that's still very much an open question. And wouldn't that apply – Regardless of if you're a consequentialist or not, or or not, I guess if you're, uh, well, what do you? Not think? necessarily. So, like, no? if you were okay. like just a radical egalitarian, for example, and your goal is not to maximize utility, it's just to to have full justice or you know equity yeah. or whatever you're sort of going for. But wouldn't there. you face the contradiction of like, well, is it better to have to sacrifice a little bit of uh, you know equality mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for everybody to be like higher up, you know? Rising, yep. wouldn't wouldn't you still face issues like that? Like, um, yeah, I mean, and yeah. and I think there's an interesting argument to be made that no matter what position you take on these population ethics questions, you will always face the kind of, you know, effectively you have to ad hoc yeah. cut off the slide at some point in terms of the distribution right. of benefits and burdens and things. I think I and think like, it's, that is like such an interesting topic to mm-hmm. me endlessly. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I think there is you know a good thought experiment of like, well, if we say we met an alien species that you know we mm-hmm. just somehow knew experienced stuff more than us, like more you know like in the in the same way that I think most people, if you're not Aaron, view uh, ants <laughs> or something as like less you know less capable of experience than we are in some way, and we don't we don't mm-hmm, value mm-hmm. one ant life like we do one human life. I hope, mm-hmm. and I really don't think we should. But if we met something that was like we were like ants to that thing, then mm-hmm. would it be like, oh, shit, do we have to, you know? And so it's interesting. I think Caleb's question is fun. It's like, is it if if you were just a strict utilitarianism, uh, utilitarian, do you need to like, OK, well, we better go try to find that thing or make that thing. Like we got to generate an experience well, thing that like has yeah. more meaningful experiences than us because that will up our utility you know, uh, ability to, uh, as a species or whatever that, you know, that's a, that's a fun yeah. question. Well, so right there at the end, you got to something that I think is like people are publishing on or working on publishable material about the idea of AI utility monsters of yeah. like, yeah. you know, where it's not possible in a normal human brain. Is it possible in an artificial system to, you know, maximize utility by creating um, hedonic plates and like turning the whole universe into hedonium, this kind of metal that experiences. There's um, a correlated. um <laughs> Uh, there's a correlated problem in this sort of area that the flip side of the utility monster, the one that is a more concern to a lot of folks, is the repugnant conclusion where you maximize utility by distributing a tiny, tiny amount of utility out to like a bunch of people. Like if you have enough people, like all of them live in a coma their whole lives and mm. wake up and experience one tiny little hug and then like go back to <laughs> sleep or something and that's their entire lives. Yeah. Like you have to concede mathematically. Automatically, yeah. that if there were enough people, that would be better than well, a life where everyone lives like we do. I think I have an example that you know, may, might maybe might challenge you a little more than something like that. Like, what if you, 
you know, again, say we can do the the whole evil person puts you in a bind kind of hypothetical, but just take it for, for granted. What if for some reason, you know, you've got a choice and you've got to like inflict some pain on someone for some reason. Uh, and on, mm-hmm. option one is, okay, you got, you know, person A here, you got to like break their leg. Or option B is, well, there actually is an AI that has a frame rate so that when you break their leg, they experience like a thousand years of leg break versus mm-hmm. this one. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you be like, well, shit, I think I'd better break the guy's leg because that, fuck, I'm doing, yep. I don't want to, you know. And the, and the same 100%. could go yep. the other way, which is like, well, uh, there's either a person who's starving and you can give them a sandwich or there's a there's an AI that somehow has the equivalent of starving. And like the way they feel mm-hmm. that hunger is like, you know, a hundred times more intense and it feels like it lasts forever, you know. You'd be like, well, mm-hmm. shit, uh, it feels like I should put my utility sandwich over here. You know, like, I, mm-hmm. I think that's actually a reasonable conclusion. Now, as as for like, okay, do we need to proactively invent that utility machine in order to, that for some reason doesn't, well, at least on an intuitive level, I don't really mm-hmm. think we are obligated to figure that, like to proactively make something like that, but... I see where the yeah there the, are there are yeah, there's a split within utilitarianism between the folks who are like you have to make more utility versus you have to maximize utility with the people that currently exist kind of and, and well so and you, I've you said could it be before, on one side of that or the other I don't know you can tell me what this is but my personal mm-hmm. feeling right now I am consequentialist in that I think everything boils down to consequences but I put my biggest emphasis morally in the world is we need to get everyone to a baseline. Like I want to mm-hmm. get everyone in the world to a baseline of they don't suffer, you know, more than this level. Like you, I, I want people mm-hmm. to not be hungry. I want people to not be killed. I want all this stuff. Like that is where I would put all of the moral weight of anything. So if somebody talks to me like, yeah, but we could build a robot that will experience. I'm like, I, I don't care. I think I yeah. think this, the consequence and, and we've talked about this a little bit before. The consequence of like a, a something suffering is far more important to me to mitigate that than it is to say, well, this person needs like an extra foot rub because it feels way better to them or something, you know? Yeah, absolutely. There's lots of ways that you could frame that around things like Maximin or mm-hmm. like just just baseline style um, systems is is one way that people have approached these kinds of... There's all sorts of fun tricks. Um, I got to sit in on a couple of grad classes with Larry Temkin, who um, studied with Derek Parfit, who's the sort of the, right. the originator of a lot of population ethics stuff. Um, and he was very obsessed with these questions around... Like Larry was obsessed with questions like, you know, what's worse is one person... Person experiencing a headache for their entire lives versus a million people experiencing a headache for one day. Those kinds of yeah. these, these, these same kinds of distribution questions, which I think might sound ridiculous, but have really serious implications when yeah. you look at how they translate into, you know, distrib- distribution of vaccines, for example. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a really great question, um, though I realize we're way past time and I've got to torture you properly. So, oh, OK, let yeah. So well, let, let me just the, uh, yeah. one quick mm-hmm. twenty second. I I think I must have heard an interview with somebody. I can't remember now. It's been too long. But I found it very compelling that at least based on human, you know, psychology or physiology or whatever, um, pain is far worse than pleasure is good for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's mm-hmm. just a fact about our species. And I think that's pretty mm-hmm. well demonstrated. And so there, and then that might be the fundamental base reason why I think it's more important to prevent suffering than it is to like try to increase pleasure somewhere else mm-hmm. no i think that's a very plausible argument i think a lot of people are sympathetic to, to arguments like that so good point okay 
So this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. For folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are your only huh. options. You can't hedge. You can't oh. define what the word means. There's no okay. middle ground here. Real or not wow. real. All right. Okay. Are you ready? I don't know. No. All right. Let's find oh. out. Uh, that that <laughs> um, wasn't one of them. <laughs> First of all, is anything real? Yes. Okay, let's find out what's real then. That's a test for... <laughs> oh, I could have just gotten no. out of it. Nah, I'm done. All right, this has been another show. Yeah. No, no, the rules are I still have to go through the list even if you oh. say no, just to make sure. Um, okay. okay, is the external world real? Yes. Okay. Are colors real? Yes. Is phenomenal consciousness real? Yes. Free will? Oh. Well, with it... I- in a no-hedging mm-hmm. world, I mm-hmm. guess I'll just say no. Okay. Selves or persons? Ooh, God, how do you not hedge on that? I'm going to say yes. Okay. Genders? Look, I'm not hedging, but my yes is they are real, but not necessarily. <laughs> no, that, no, 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 okay. no, 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 no. Genders. Doesn't mean that every <laughs> single person. Okay. Gen- mm-hmm. Gender? Mm-hmm. Genders. Mm-hmm. Oh, Gender. Gender, is it real? What does that mean? I mean, I don't know. Is gender real? <laughs> real. I guess in in the same way like mm, any other real or not constructs real. are real. Are human constructs real? Mm, real or not real. Come on. I don't know if human constructs are real or not. That's not that's not, that's not how this game works. We don't get to talk about it. Real you just gotta say real or not real. Gender. I'm going to say real. Okay. Races? Uh, races. I think they're real. Okay. Species? Uh, gosh, they're both real and unreal in the way that race is, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Real? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Final answer? Real? Species. Uh, I don't think you can boil it down. So, yeah, sure, That's real. Why not? That's not the way this works. Morality. Uh, I know what you want me to say. <laughs> Morality. <laughs> mm. Morality. That's tough. I think it's about as real as gender. Sure. Real. Real. Okay. Rights. Mm. Same. As real as gender. Mm, knowledge. Real. God or gods. Not real. Society. Society? Uh, Society. Sure, real. Okay. Money. Real. Numbers. Uh, real. Fictional characters. Not real. Holes, like a hole in the ground. <laughs> uh, ooh. <laughs> I'm just gonna be real. Real. I'm a real person. I like realism. Okay. Realistic. Chairs. Real. Sandwiches. Ooh. Uh. Ah, oh, that's tough. Not real. I'm gonna go not real on sandwiches. Okay. That's probably the safe bet for our group. I would say. Yeah. Uh, science. Science. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, real. Mm-hmm. Natural laws. Uh, ooh. Ooh, that's a really complicated one. Uh, I'll, I'll say real. Beauty. Mm. Nah, I'm going to go not real on beauty just for fun. <laughs> Love. Eh. <laughs> it's as real as gender. <laughs> I love how little you care about these ones. Yeah, uh, I don't causality. Really causality. Oh, that's so. I, was, I don't care about a one word answer to stuff. I was just like thinking about these things, mm-hmm. talking about them, but we're out of time. <laughs> causality. Mm-hmm. That's a hard one, but I, I real. I'll go real. I don't know. Though. <laughs> I'm going to tell your wife that you couldn't care less about whether love is real, but you're yeah, like, causality, right man. Oh, yeah. God. Feels. Yeah. Uh, and finally, time. Time. Time is real. I think time is very real. Okay. You have survived. How do you feel? Ah, just uh, food. I think I think it matters. There's, it's not useful because there's so many senses in which things could be real or unreal. Maybe Or maybe you start off with a baseline. Like you got to, you know. Or maybe you you're gotta, confused about what the purpose is. Yeah, probably confusing purposes, but uh, real, I don't know. what. Okay, what is the definition of real? <laughs> well, I think that's part of the activity there. is to make you realize yeah. that there is no simple definition of real, despite what yeah. some people on the internet might tell you. Oh, okay. Well, that was a good one. That was fun. Um, thanks, Thomas, for coming on and playing the game we often play over on Flossers in Space. Do you want to let folks know what other podcasts they might want to check you out on? Are there any others? I don't know. I've never... Are, are there? <laughs> yeah. No, check out uh, Serious Inquiries Only. Lately, it's been a ton of fun. Again, I highly recommend those uh, evolutionary psychology ones. Those are some of my favorite episodes I've ever done. It's just really fun, and uh, they were funny and uh, learned a lot, so... Check that out. And then, of course, Opening Arguments is podcast, uh, my my main podcast these days. So I, mm. I imagine people have heard of that one, but uh, check that out. But no, yeah, I, this was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me on. You must be defining Maine in some sort of weird, yeah. not fully understandable kind of way. It's interesting. In that if that one went away, I'd have to get a job at the state again. get a job. Yeah. yeah that's fair, that's fair. Um, well, thank you, Thomas. It's been lots of fun. Um, and if y'all want to or would like to support the show, please uh, subscribe and leave us a five-star rating review on podcast apps. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you've noticed a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just four bucks a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus book club content. Eight bucks a month gets you all that plus lecture videos on topics like AI ethics. Most of all, no matter what else changes, you are the void and the void is you.